Welcome to this edition of The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and explores the extraordinary powers of governments and companies. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. And, as ever, today I'm here with Caitlin Bishop. Hello! Hopefully you're about to go on some kind of break, depending on where you are in the world. So we thought we would identify some of the interesting books we're taking with us, or books we've read this year that you may find interesting too. This is like the summer vacation version of the PI Insider, our mailing list that we set up recently that goes through the global news around the issues we work on. We've got some colleagues joining us to take us through their recommendations, and we've listed the books they discuss in the description of this podcast, wherever you find it. So as you'll see and hear, the PI staff are diverse in their reading and, how do we put it, quite well read, to be to be honest. They definitely raised the tenor of my reading list to some degree. Some of them people will have met before from other podcasts and, you know, maybe we'll also list those if you recognize the voice and you're not sure where from. Some of them you won't have met before and we're very excited to introduce you to them. Now we're talking to Lucy, who's a legal officer from PI. She works across loads of our projects and she is a data protection expert. Although I don't think she wants that title. <laughs> like she knows a lot about data <laughs> protection, but I do. think she, she, she wants to keep it on the down. <laughs> <laughs> it being summer, it's a time where people are supposed to have time off, and I hope you will at some point. And uh, people are often looking for things to read. I was wondering, first is to geek out. You know, what would you advise for summer reading for a budding or old time privacy advocate? But then also, what are you reading this summer in order to just escape? Yes. So maybe I'll start with what I'm reading to escape. That's a great. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any recent recommendations for good privacy books because I haven't read any in a while. (laughs) (laughs) So the sort of big book that I've brought with me this summer is uh, A History of Western Philosophy by Bertrand Russell. That's what you're reading to escape. That's your escape book. It's a history of Western philosophy by Bertrand Russell. That's that's exactly everyone's reaction whenever I mention it or they see it on my nightstand or something. That said, I think it's probably, for me, philosophy in general is probably the best escape route for anything. I've always loved philosophy. We we study it at school in France. It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. I studied it at uni a bit and I've always loved it. It's the one way to both completely ground yourself in reality and completely detach yourself from it. And this one in particular, History of Western Philosophy, is even better because it tells you the story of all these philosophers that think about crazy things and how their personal lives impacted their own philosophy. And it starts from like the very, very, very first philosophers like Pythagore and all that stuff. And it goes all the way to today. And it's a really easy read. It doesn't sound like it, but it's a really easy read. It's like reading a a little... <laughs> I read it in like, French. He's so a good writer. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's an excellent writer, and it's not written like it's not a philosophy book. It's not going to be like 
you know, going into the depths of Kant's philosophy or something. It's really going to tell the story of philosophers and their society and people at the time and how they came to think the, the way they thought, which is just fascinating. And it's seriously a really good escape route. This <laughs> sounds amazing. Sound good. I do have another escape book if you need something a bit more believable. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, so the, I think the other one I put down was it's on my nightstand right now. It's called "The Spy Who Came In from the Cold" by oh, John Le Carre. Wonderful, yes. So I I discovered John Le Carre when he passed away. I think it was last year. I I actually didn't know about him, but I I really love mystery books in general and spy books and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try that this summer. And apparently, this one is is his most famous and i'm almost done with it and it's just so good it's it's one of those spy books that isn't really a spy book it's more of a kind of psychological thriller and deep dive into one person's mind it's really really incredible and that's a real escape one and it really resonates with some of the work we do as well when we you know now that i work somehow with you know on what secret services do and intelligence agencies do i kind of really love reading those kinds of things i'm like hmm maybe i shouldn't identify to you too much and maybe i shouldn't admire <laughs> you too much because you do bad things <laughs> lucy before we lose you guys ask you about two other books you you recommended yeah. based on the reading you've done this year and i gotta say the reading you've done this year uh, the list that you gave us just is fascinating but th th there's two that you mentioned which one is a french one about the wind ah, and the yes. other is about the french fight to legalize abortion i was wondering if you yeah. could just talk us through this yeah for sure so the first one which is uh la horde du contrevent there's no english translation yet so there's no official english name for it so literally it means the horde of the counterwind and it's a sci-fi book but it's not a normal sci-fi book um as in don't expect like star trek or star wars or things like that it's well first of all you start at page 700 and just go down to page one through the book so oh. it, it takes takes a few minutes to wrap your head around that when you start reading the second weird thing is that there's symbols everywhere throughout the book that are used to like tell you who is speaking what kind of position they are physically in in the story it's very 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 strange so it takes i'd say it takes about 100 pages to wrap your head around how the book works <laughs> which is insane oh my God. but it's very cool and so the story is basically this kind of like team of 30 people whose quest is to find the origin of the wind and we're in this sort of parallel world where the wind is really strong and really hard to live with um and it's been going on like that for we what we think is centuries. Everything is very cryptic in this book. So you, you can't really understand what time is, where things are. And yet it's very relatable. So you can totally imagine yourself there. And it's very close to our world with just these weird little quirks. And so these this team of like really strong, intelligent people who each have a, a, a special sort of skill. They're not magicians or anything. It's all very sort of real, but each have a special skill all team up together to try and go against the wind, up the world, against the wind, to find the origin of wind. It all sounds really up there, <laughs> but That's it's amazing. incredible. 
And the great thing as well is that you switch from narrator to narrator. So you can have one paragraph that's narrated by one of the team members, then another one by another one. And so you really start to piece together the story from very, very different perspectives. And you really get into people's perceptions of their quest and of their world. And it's just, it's just incredible. And it, that, that oh, would probably wow. be the, the number one escape book if, if there was one to recommend. And I cannot wait for it to be translated to English so that my Anglophone friends can read it because it's just so good. That's a Christmas gift to everybody. I might even refresh my French. Just like, This sounds intriguing, but 700 pages of French for the first time <laughs> since like, for 20 years. That would be quite yeah. a challenge. And there's some invented words as well. Loads of invented words. So when I started reading it, I was like, God, have I lost my French this hard? All these words I don't remember. <laughs> no, they're really just invented words. <laughs> <laughs> the second book you yes. recommended. Yeah, so the, the other book, I think it's, it's probably been translated to English. The translation I found online is The Right to Choose. In French, it's La Cause des Femmes, which actually means something very different. It means the women's cause, basically. And it's about Giselle Alimi, who's um, a French-Algerian lawyer who was basically instrumental in legalizing abortion in France in the 70s because she started off by going to court by defending women who had gotten abortions, i.e. unlawful abortions at the time, and trying to make the case that their getting an abortion was not because of you know, their own choice, but because they actually had no choice. <laughs> and so in order to survive in society, they needed to get an abortion. And so that's how her fight to legalize abortion started by these really individual cases of women who had suffered through so much, whose society had really let down and who were forced into the situation of being pregnant. And she was trying to get them out of it through various wow. uses of the law that basically criminalized abortion. But there were other laws that she was able to use to, to say, well, you know, she didn't have a choice there. And that was all instrumental to building up the sort of public mindset around abortion and, and, and making people understand that abortion isn't choice and it's, it, it should just be a right. And then abortion was legalized in 1975, but it was still very limited. So there were, there were loads of conditions that you had to fulfill in order to get a, a lawful abortion. So unlawful abortions were still going on quite a lot. And she kept fighting until conditions kept dropping one at a time in order to get to, to full rights for, for abortion. And it was a fascinating read because it was written by her and it's written from her perspective on, you know, how you build a rights movement and how you, how it can take an entire person's life to get to, 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 you know, one thing, to get to one law that will change everyone's lives. And it was, yeah, it was just such a powerful read. Really loved it. That sounds, sounds fascinating. Amazing. Gosh, I thought I had my summer reading. It's a short read as well, so I would recommend. Okay, phew. Okay, I thought I had my summer reading sorted, and now you've uh, you've inspired me to consider more, and that's going to be challenging. I think I'll leave Bertrand Russell for the the fall. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Lucy. We really appreciate it. Thank you both. It was lovely to speak to you. Now we're being joined by Clara, who is responsible for our fundraising and digital campaigns. 
Thanks for being with us today, Clara. <laughs> what, like, what guidance do you have for all of us who are in dire need of a break? What do you have to tell us to read so we can escape? Yeah, I mean, I feel like we all need that right now. So one of my big recommendations for kind of escapist books was a Ray Bradbury novel, which kind of unexpected given his sci-fi and kind of fantasy and some really deep stuff that he's written. But I came across this book called Dandelion Wine, which is kind of his coming of age novel. And it's full of nostalgia and it's set in uh, 1928 Illinois. I was reading it and it kind of made me feel nostalgic for a time that I never really experienced, but it felt like the complete antidote to whatever is going on right now, like modern life. Yeah, it's a really beautiful, poetic novel. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I didn't know he wrote anything like that. Like like Slaughterhouse um, 5 has has an element. That's Vonnegut. That's Vonnegut. Vonnegut. Oh my God, I totally got that (laughs) wrong. Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Which is like the classic. Yeah. Book burning-y one, right? Yep. That and I so feel for like him I to write this kind of book, wow. Mm. Like, Fahrenheit 451 was the book you read when you wanted to be, like, cool and anti-establishment. So you read yep. Fahrenheit 451 and you read, like, you know, all those books and you felt cool. <laughs> yeah. But I remember it being, like, quite a poetic, prosy book, Fahrenheit mm. 451. So his his coming-of-age novel sounds fascinating. Yeah, it's it's super cool. Like, obviously, I'm not American. I didn't live in 1920s America, but it the way that it's written is so beautiful and kind of almost spiritual. The the protagonist is like a 12 year old. I think Ray Bradbury wrote it kind of as himself, as like a 12 year old, and it's this super cool 12 year old just hanging out in summer and sort of grappling with the big concepts of like life and death and why are we here but kind of set from like a child's mind it's it's super fascinating and it's just this beautiful kind of summer novel cool yeah i love it (laughs) we had talks about books before and i feel like you said that you don't read that much fiction no i'm not really a fiction person really and my kind of other books that i've compiled for this recording none of them are fiction apart from this one and it it, yeah I don't really enjoy fiction in the same way that I enjoy non-fiction I like to learn things as I read like if I'm going to spend my time reading I want to learn something from it but yeah this book had a really profound kind of effect on me in terms of just being full escapism yeah highly recommend it even if you're not really a fiction reader wow I like I have to admit like if I hadn't been able to travel back to North America this summer, right now as we're recording this, I'm visiting family in Canada, I would have probably had a hard time reading that book just because I've, I've kind of avoided reading anything that is uh, situated in Canada or in America because I've just been so homesick for so long. Actually, this sounds like a beautiful way to uh, spend the next period here reading something like that. Yeah, I felt very homesick for a time that I've never lived through. (laughs) So I'm sure if you've experienced it, it small town America or small town North American areas, then I'm sure it'll make you very homesick, but in a good way. And so what do you have (laughs) for us that isn't fiction then? (laughs) A novel that I read, I don't know how recent it is, but it's by a journalist called Anna Merlan called The Republic of Lies, American conspiracy theorists and their surprising rise to power. And it's this amazing kind of 
investigative work into the rise of modern day conspiracy theories, sort of the alt-right, QAnon, the anti-vax movement and how it's become such a big movement in America and around the world. And it was one of those books that I just couldn't put down because it's such a a new phenomenon and it, it was cool to read someone going into these groups and trying to understand the origins and how this is being spread so rapidly and why people are latching onto this kind of these kind of concepts and is she able to capture like is this a new thing is this a a, a is the the pandemic moment and the post-trump moment a time where it, there was just so much kindling that it's a brand new fire that's never existed before or is it a, a continuation of a of a number of fires over a period of time yeah so what she finds is that the way in which that these movements are growing is very new given the rise in technology and advertising and the sort of small communities that pop up around the internet. But the theories themselves and the ideas themselves sort of distrust and anti-establishment, these have been around for as long as there's been people in power. And so it's just the kind of logical conclusion, not logical conclusion, but the next logical step in those kind of movements now that the internet and technology have kind of caught up with them and these movements have kind of latched onto the ways that they can spread and grow on the internet. But something I found really interesting in the book itself was that I thought it would be completely critical of all these movements. But the way that it's done is what I thought was really interesting is that she provides context for why certain groups of people perhaps are more prone to getting involved in these groups and take for instance like the anti-vax movement at the moment it's a huge movement around the world I say movement like it's a, a collective but like it's a huge idea around the world at the moment and I thought it was really interesting that she decided to speak to people about why they are anti-vax and a lot of the causes are because of things such as medical racism, medical misogyny and the the distrust that these establishments have caused these groups of people which have led them to hold on to these kind of anti-vax beliefs and I just thought it was really interesting because so many people kind of write that off as like crazy people, they're lunatics but there are some, I found it kind of I thought it was wonderful that she spoke to these people and understood. And I think that's a really helpful way to, I don't know, to understand these issues is to understand the kind of the root cause as to why these people are prone to these kind of beliefs. I so interesting. I, oh man, this is another one I'm going to add to my list. Cause <laughs> as we've all had to spend time, we've had the fortune of being able to spend time with different people who we haven't been locked down with over the last mm-hmm. period. So whether we're seeing friends or family we haven't spe- seen mm-hmm. for a while or spoken to, I'm having a lot of these conversations all of a sudden. Yeah. And there was a situation where I was talking to a parent and a kid separately where the parent was of one view and the kid was of another view when it came to vaccines. And by the time I was explaining individually the other side of the picture to each. I, I became a believer of both. And oh. it was it was wonderful to see the melting of the, even like the pro-vaccine views. Like, hold on, you put something in your veins that you had no idea what was going on because just because somebody said that this was going to be trustworthy. And I was mm-hmm. saying this to somebody who generally doesn't trust anybody. And you could see <laughs> the mind start exploding, thinking, oh, why did I do this? And it's just, it's good to see people starting to question themselves. And maybe that's, uh, yeah, healthy. Yeah. What was the third one? 
So this is a book that I've read a few times now. It's called Tranny, Confessions of Punk Rock's Most Infamous Anarchist Sellout. And it's a collection of journal entries by the kind of punk singer Laura Jane Grace. And it's co-authored by Dan Ozzy. And it's about Laura Jane Grace's transition. So if you don't know, Laura Jane Grace is the front woman of a punk band Against Me, who've been around since like the early 2000s. And she transitioned in 2012 and now lives as a woman. And yeah, this book is a collection of kind of her journal entries from, I think, the third grade. I don't know what age that is in UK ages. (laughs) But she compiled this into a novel while she was going through her transition. And it's just a really fascinating look of someone growing up like a really good growing up novel of someone struggling with their gender identity, being involved in a quite a a male dominated area of music in the punk scene, becoming like a famous in the punk scene and then coming to terms with their gender identity and transitioning while in the public eye. And it's just, it's incredibly raw. It's funny. It deals with issues of yeah, gender identity, the concept of selling out, in punk yeah it's a really really beautiful book and it 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 made me I've I've read it a few times because it really stuck with me as one of these books that really helped me understand gender identity and the way that the the feelings that people have around gender dysphoria and uh the kind of different iterations that can take she's really cool she's an incredible front woman and the way that she expresses herself in this book is it's really funny and kind of brutal and says some really dark things and it's just fascinating it's a really really interesting book if you're interested in music anything to do with like any musical literature and gender identity as well well i i actually don't even know the band so (laughs) i got got a lot to do (laughs) yeah that's awesome and again my to read list is getting so fucking long Yeah, I'm glad I mean, I could good that. stuff. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you, you definitely have. So thank have you very, very much. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> no you. worries. Now we're talking to Millie, who's a solicitor, a senior legal officer and research director and leads our migration and civic dystopias work. I listed a load of books I'm going to be reading and I have a real problem with then finding something new. So one of the the books I didn't tell you about is this woman called Gina Yashere, who's a comedian, and I heard her on the radio. Oh, my God. So enthusiastic. So funny. And I watched a whole load of her videos after listening to her being interviewed. And I thought, I've got to read this book. It's absolutely fascinating and she talks I think I'm going to get it right about growing up and her mum was very strict and how after she left home she just went and did all the things she wasn't allowed to do (laughs) and she just tells such hilarious stories from her own memories and family and 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 growing up and she I think she's now based in New York but yeah I really want to read that now I need a funny book I haven't read a funny book for ages where you just sit there and laugh and everyone thinks you're mad I love that (laughs) oh my god you're right I haven't it's been ages. And yeah, do it on an airplane if you can. Just be <laughs> on the tube person. where you can't mm. control yourself. It's that good that you just tears are coming. But the other time I do it is when I listen to an audiobook on the way to pick up the kids. And I was listening to Emma Barnett's book, It's About Bloody Time. 
and um there's so many things that you probably shouldn't I don't know we should be all speaking about it and not be embarrassed but there there are various bits where she's talking about people who she's nicknamed the bloodhounds anyway I'm not gonna get into it but oh, it, do. <laughs> okay really oh my god I can't believe this is the intro so she is talking about how we need to sort of talk about people having sex on their period either some people like it some people don't some people love it some guys love it they're the bloodhounds i think it's that see oh. this is too much Catherine ryan has a thing in her sitcom where she says um real men run red lights that's what it is oh really Great yeah line. it's a whole thing real men run red lights and yeah. i remembered it because it, it really sticks with you yeah, that stuff you don't forget. All the others. I actually, when I first heard about the book, I messaged Gus saying, you know, as executive director of an organisation which has a lot of women in it, apparently you should be reading this book. And I didn't hadn't actually listened to it by that point. So, <laughs> so Gus, you clearly haven't read it yet. It does have some very interesting stuff in it about you know, making adjustments at work, should you or shouldn't you? Like, how do you deal with those issues? And she includes a lot of the disagreements between women on how you should deal with these things. And should should you have specific leave related to it? Or should you be very explicit that you can use sick leave for these issues? And it's encouraged, but it's a super fascinating book that just does a lot of work that should have been done years ago and, and talks about how we should all be talking about these things more, but maybe not with your executive director. Yeah, I'm glad we've had this conversation before I read it based on your recommendation <laughs> earlier. Uh, but yeah, cool. what else do you have for us? What else am I going to read? Weirdly, my gym has a book club, which I still haven't joined, but they've been recommending some really good books. And one of them is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I think I most name. people are familiar with Viktor Frankl in relation to the Holocaust. And this book is is incredible, and I can't believe I haven't finished it yet. But it's a very different consideration of being in that time, being held by certain individual people's... It's more people's reaction to being in in that situation. And... He talks about how other people who were held with him responded and how some people just showed unbelievable kindness and compassion right to the end where they may have been murdered or died, you know, during their detention. But then other people were more complicit as part of their survival mechanism. And it's really fascinating, his view on that. And it really... I constantly think, like, how would I have responded? Like, if if suddenly you were being lined up for who's going to go and be murdered, would you be, like, shoving someone else forward? Would you be trying to avoid it? Like, it really makes you question it. So, yeah, I think it's it's one of those books that you, you read and, and you could probably reread several times to really reflect on your own behavior as well as, as what happened then. It's, it's and amazing. And that's so haunting. And that's uh, the question I, I almost always ask myself. Like, how human am I? Yeah, that's his question, See. Oh, that sounds amazing. It's not a long book. It's really a powerful one. And so, yeah, I need. I want to sit down and properly finish that one and think about it and, and read it again. <laughs> and particularly as we start getting out again post-lockdowns and, and interacting with more people and dealing with situations that are well beyond our control. Oh, this sounds fascinating. Yeah. The human condition, jeez. Sorry, what's the name of the book again? 
It's called uh, Man's Search for Meaning, I think. Awesome. You yeah. start with something funny and then <laughs> get this through <laughs> bloodhounds and then here. Wow. So one book that I, you know, you can just sit down and read a book in one sitting, Shuggy Bane. Oh, my God. I was there. Like those books you read and you are in on the outskirts of Glasgow. It's so amazing the, the way it just pulls you in there and and again makes you think about someone's life that is so incredibly different from your own it's it's just a fantastic read it's it's hard going I think in some respect I mean I didn't find it that hard going the other people I've spoken to it took them a while to get into maybe the first chapter and whilst it might be bleak and depressing it has uplifting aspects and it's told in a way that is also amusing and you are on the edge of your seat for a lot of it and your sort of hearts in your mouth because you are rooting for the characters that's what I love about this is you are rooting for the characters and you want the fairy tale ending which doesn't always happen for everyone in it and I think growing up in the UK like I don't know what it's like reading it as someone who's not who didn't grow up in the UK but you can just you can picture it you can see it you could, it takes you back in time and there are there are twists in it in relation to certain characters and and things that they do and it makes you reflect on how the consequences of of how you would people were treated and how people were raised and that has then impact on on later life decisions and just some real some real tragedy in it so serious tragedy but yeah god it's just it's formidable uh, so yeah put that on your reading list sorry please. what's it called again well shuggy bane it won the i can't remember which award um but yeah when i was looking for for um new books it was all over the papers but yeah it's it's brilliant and and it's one of those books where you then go and read interviews with the author because you're so fascinated and that's also around the same time I read Such a Fun Age which is a great book but you're just really not rooting for any of the characters in that (laughs) 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 they're all like they're all flawed in some ways you you support some of them but then they all have bits about them you're like even though some of the characters in Shuggy Bane are really problematic you know have problems themselves you still you Mm. still like life has not been fair to you like, I really want it to turn around somehow, but um, yeah, that's a great book. A short one, which is more of an essay. It was a, it was, it was a recorded discussion, Do Humankind's Best Days Lie Ahead? That's another reread. And I've been meaning to read that for ages. And so it looks at, I mean, it says it in the name, like, are things better or worse now? And Ooh, so who's it, it by? It's a discussion between Pinker Ridley, De Botton and Gladwell. And I think it was hosted in Canada and uh, I've been meaning to buy it, to read it, and it's very quick to read. But you know, you think you're on one side, and then you switch because I've started Pinker's book. What is it about the angels? Something, yeah. something. Uh, so many. I've, I've, and I've had it as an audio book too. I've listened to it, and it's so amazing. But then interesting for someone to reflect on the other side, and and it is quite jokey, and because it's a discussion, it's not all written down. But uh, yeah, so that's a really nice, quick one. If you're going to see friends and family and you want to sound intelligent, have a quick read of that. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's the premise of most of Malcolm Gladwell's work. But like, I feel like that's 
Malcolm Gladwell's main thing is like read his books, gain some facts, spit them out at other people. You sound intelligent. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's exactly. the premise of his career. <laughs> Maybe I need a bookshelf of those kind of books. <laughs> Quick read before you go and meet clever people. Uh, then they'll probably be like, "Didn't you copy that from uh, Malcolm Gladwell's books? Not your original thought." But uh, yeah. Millie, thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't have more, more notes on them to go through it. But yeah, anyway, you've got the list. Thank you very much, Millie. You're, My you're, pleasure. You've given me much to do, giving us all much to do. Here is Laura, a legal officer from PI, who also leads our work on economic and social rights. So, Laura, you've been on vacation, and so you, you can maybe tell us what you've read on or if you have recommendations for others as they embark. Yeah. So the book that I just finished reading is Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. And it's a book by, I think, a Korean author, which outlines the story of a family as they migrate from what is now South Korea to Japan, Osaka in the early 1900s or in the mid-1900s. So it's a book that captures both the personal history of that family, but at the same time, the history and the tensions between Korea, later North Korea, South Korea, and Japan, and the hardships that Koreans and immigrants faced while living in Japan, even many, many generations after having moved in to Japan with their families. Wow. So early 1900s. Yes. Because, oh, that's fascinating. Because that moment in in, in history, too. Because does it navigate the time pre-World War? Oh, my gosh. Yes. And uh, personally, I didn't know much about that side of the world in terms of World War One and Two and what happens in between. So for me, it was strange to start with a with a story that clearly has Korean characters, but where the distinction between North and South Korea doesn't yet exist. It feels so unnatural and strange. And then basically understanding their experiences at the time when Japanese is involved in World War II. It's also different because you don't really think about Koreans as a community being deeply affected by the war, but they are, especially the ones who live in Japan. And they have to grapple with all series of obstacles, including discrimination. And it's a point of view that I had never before encountered. And I found it not just enlightening, but also very educating. So is that that's nonfiction now, right? Or is it fiction? It's fiction, but the story is centered around real historical events. So for example, yeah. there is one particularly sad part of the book involves one of the characters being injured as a result of the bomb in Nagasaki because he was working in Nagasaki at the time. And so that it is historically accurate in that sense, but yeah, that it doesn't it doesn't purport to create a biographical study. No, but that's my favorite kind of fiction—the ones that navigate history and give you. Well, that's also why I like biographical stories because it, it gives you a, a human story at the same time as telling a the world events. Oh, that sounds great! Any book that tries to capture the challenge of a migrant identity, I think uh, it's, it's it's something I, I get I get lost in. I just love it. Okay, that's also going in that pile. Oh, good gosh. <laughs> what else do you have for us? So now that you've said that, I feel compelled to mention another book written by a migrant to the U.S., Ocean Wong. So he's mostly a poet. He's Vietnamese-American, and his debut novel is called On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. And it still follows that, that thread of migrant family adapting to a foreign country. 
So he moves to the U.S., or rather he's born in the U.S., I believe, and he lives with his mom, who's illiterate, and his grandma. And basically they go as a family together through the aftershocks of the war between America and Vietnam. Oh, and it's it's told from such a personal, intimate point of view that it's not evidently political. But for example, something that the, the main protagonist struggles with is the fact that his mother and grandmother have been so traumatized by the war, which they lived through back at home, that he experiences a series of issues with his mom who suffers from PTSD, and I think his grandmother does too. And so that makes the domestic situation particularly difficult. And in a way, the book itself is an ode to his mom and to his grandma because it's written in an epistolary fashion. So it's a series of letters that the author has written to his mother that he knows she will never read because she's illiterate, but that kind of go back and examine episodes of his childhood where he basically comes to terms with the fact that his mom had to face a lot of difficulties when she lived in Vietnam and that the result of all of that is that he had to grapple with lots of violence growing up uh, that he otherwise probably wouldn't have had to deal with. So it's this reckoning of the impact of the war and uh, what personal effect that had on him, even though he didn't live through it himself. Writing letters to somebody who, who, who won't read them. What a powerful storytelling I, I don't even want to say device because that makes it sound so simple. But what a, oh my God, it's it's poetic at every single level. And the title of the book alone is just, it makes you want to buy it. Yeah. And there's so much to unpack. It's a relatively short book, but every single chapter has so many different things. And I think it's also because it was written by a poet. So there's a lot of meaning to be gleaned from even simple sentences. So the way I've gone through it, it actually took me ages to read it because I had to pause after every single chapter and just ponder and go back to sentences because it felt as though the author was trying to convey some hidden meaning in his prose and I was missing it. And I felt like I had missed something. And I'm like, is this meant to recreate the sort of intimacy that you have with family members? You know, those shared anecdotes or memories. It was a, a weird experience reading the book. I enjoyed it because it was just so different from what you usually read. Wonderful. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, that's going on the list as well. And it's short, but it takes a lot of time. Maybe that's a long plane ride if, for when those days return. Mm, yeah. Yeah. There was a list actually that we haven't really come to with anyone, which is if neither time or attention span were limitations, which book would you want to read? Yeah. So for me, I have to say the answer is um, Bleak House by Charles ah. Dickens. It's a book that I've often heard mentioned. And um, for context, I studied law. And obviously, there are a series of books that are considered to be prime reading for anyone who wants to become a lawyer, because they not only inform your understanding of the profession, but also the moral strength behind it. And I know both of you will want to challenge me on this. And I'm not, <laughs> saying, I'm not saying that there is any moral strength in the profession, but I will say that there is a lot of potential to practice a profession morally. <laughs> and I've wanted to read it for a long time because I consider it relevant. But at the same time, I love Charles Dickens. I, I, I love his literature. The reason why I haven't really done it yet is because I know that Charles Dickens can make miracles, but the, the topic in itself sounds very boring. It's a family that's embroiled in this legal battle that seems to never come to an end. And there are conflicting versions of the will. And there's this whole backstory, you know, all the drama that usually follows the, the death of a person and when there's anything to be gained for surviving family members. And obviously it specializes or it looks into a very narrow area of law, which is probate law or chancery law. 
which isn't of particular interest to me, but it still feel that if Charles Dickens wrote something about the legal profession and I am practicing in the UK, then I should definitely read this book. But I just never feel like I have the um, the mental energy or even intellectual <laughs> curiosity to to get in there. It just it just feels like it, it'll, it'll bore me dry. <laughs> I've never made it through a Charles Dickens book. That's exactly my point. I've never done it either, and so I, it would definitely go in that category of like if time wasn't an issue. <laughs> but the people who have read it love Dickens. Laura, is there anything else you want to add to my pile, or was that your list? I'd like to mention a final one because I think it's politically relevant uh, these days and basically has to do with my with my home country, Peru. And it was written by a Peruvian author, Alfredo Braise Chenique. And the book is old. It was, it was published in the 1970s. And actually, I think 2020 marked its 50th year anniversary, which gave me an opportunity to reread it. The book is called A World for Julius. So Julius is a young boy born to a super aristocratic, upper-class Peruvian family. And through his eyes, you can understand the kind of racial divide and socioeconomic and how socioeconomic status can affect your life as a, as a modern-day Peruvian. And it, it's such a smart, kind of sharp social critique, despite the fact that it's being told through the eyes of the child. And the reason why I'm bringing this book up is that I recently watched the presidential speech of the new Peruvian president, uh, Pedro Castillo, who was just sworn in less than a couple weeks ago. And this year marks 200 years since Peruvian independence, actually. So the 28th of July was our 200th um, independence anniversary. And it was a bit of a grim celebration because the candidate which won the elections at the end wasn't anyone's dream candidate. But also the other candidate that made it to the to the final round wasn't great either. So it was a bit of a, I guess, a depressing celebration. And some people didn't even celebrate at all, even though for many years, people have been talking about their bicentenary anniversary. But so in his presidential speech, which was incredibly controversial, the new president mentioned the aftershocks of Spanish colonization and how we were living the discrimination that modern day Peruvians are living through, the poverty, the extreme poverty that many people are living are, are surviving in Peru, that those are direct or in a way indirect results from Spanish colonization. And so the lessons uh, from the book, which if read before this recent presidential speech, would have felt really removed from Peruvian modern life, those lessons feel now very raw, especially relevant, considering that uh, there's been an open recognition that Peru still hasn't healed from those wounds, that they still exist. So that's the final book that I wanted to to add to the list, because I thought it was uh, relevant for anyone interested in Peruvian history and and wanting to have some sort of apolitical introduction to it. That's definitely a book that I would recommend. Wow. And and is this available in English or is it? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, It's it's been around for a while, so it it will have been translated. Fantastic. Oh, thank you for that. Thank yeah. you for that. That's really cool. That's a great spot to end. It, it's just what, what I love about working at PI, too. It's like there are just so many perspectives and the, the diversity. Like, So we started talking about French literature with Lucy, and I haven't read a French book in ages, and she, she's inspired me to do so. And then um, just recently with Millie, we were talking about it, an author writing around Glasgow. 
and throughout we're getting all these 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 stories from our colleagues talking about you know what it is to live life in these environments that these books are, are telling stories about but to to end in peru that's not a place i thought that uh i would read about and uh you definitely have inspired me to do that thank you so much laura Oh, you're welcome. But there is a film, there is a motion picture coming out about the spoke. Oh, don't ruin it. <laughs> I won't <laughs> wait for that. It was announced last year, I think as part of the 50 year anniversary of the book. I hope it's great. <laughs> okay. I'll only watch it after you give me a recommendation. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. That's <laughs> the way it should be. <laughs> and I'll try to find a version of Bleak House that we can all watch together someday. And <laughs> when the office reopens. Maybe night. Nice. Yes, indeed. A Dickensian movie night. (laughs) Love it. Thanks for listening, and thanks to all of our colleagues at PI for their wonderful suggestions. Uh, Remember, you can find all of the books we talked about in the description of whatever platform you're using. If that platform is particularly unwieldy or the description is very long and intimidating, then we should have, hopefully, a well-formatted list available on our website, privacyinternational.org. And just as ever, you can like and subscribe to the podcast on all those various platforms uh, that you may use. And just as Caitlin has said, it's also available on our website at privacyinternational.org. Generally, I'd recommend you come to our website regularly and sign up to our mailings. I feel like we're missing a, um, a hey, have a good vacation. Yeah, have a good vacation. Enjoy it. Even if it's a, if it's a at-home staycation, I hope you have a lovely one. And it's peaceful and you get a break because <laughs> I think everyone needs one. And you get time to read. Yeah. And hopefully we didn't put your bags in the to make them too heavy to go through whatever airport you may hopefully be traveling through. Take an eye over the way that. Thanks, everyone. Music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International.